This message is brought to you by Cedar Springs Church. For more information, please visit cedarspringschurchnm.org. Well, good morning. If you're just joining us, we just finished our exposition of the book of Acts, which was about the spread of the gospel to the ends of the earth. So we're we're taking a brief break to look at what the Bible says is supposed to happen after the gospel has been spread, specifically uh, the, the idea of discipleship. So like last week, we're going to bounce around a little bit, and we're going to begin in 1 Colossians chapter, tw- uh, chapter 1, verse 28, if you want to start heading there in your Bibles. If you'll remember last week, we talked about that often forgotten second half of the Great Commission. It says... Uh, Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to obey all that I have commanded you. There's an, there's an and in there that usually gets dropped off. And that, that and is, is, is what, we're, what we're looking at. We saw last week that being influenced and influencing others is not something we can escape. It's part of our DNA. It's the way we have been created. We were created to influence people and be influenced, which, in other words, that means we disciple every day. The question is, is, is who are we influencing and, and who are we allowing to influence us? And so what we did last week was we looked at, at where the, the heart for biblical discipleship comes from. And we saw that, that, that first, the heart of, of biblical discipleship begins by being a disciple of Christ. You believe that, that his life, death, and resurrection is how you are saved. And that then leads to the second place that a heart is born from, which naturally, if, if you're the disciple of someone who was that radically others-oriented, that they gave their life for sinners, then you would naturally be others-oriented. So the second place that a heart of discipleship is born from is being others-oriented. And third, because our ability to be that way to be others-oriented is also given to us by our Savior, then ultimately a heart for discipleship is born out of worship because it begins, continues, and ends with our Savior. That's what we looked at last week. If that's where biblical discipleship comes from, if that's the heart that, that biblical discipleship comes from, then this week we're going to look at the very practical. I'm going to get very, very practical. We're going to look at the very practical aspect of, of what biblical discipleship looks like. How do we biblically disciple others? And I'll tell you right up front, just so you know now, um, I'm pulling a lot of information from Mark Dever's book called Discipling. So if you hear anything profound, it's probably from him. Just tell you that right up front, but... Before we get started, let's pray. It's a good book if you want to if you want to give it a read. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we just sang, I can only say, "Oh my soul." We praise you, Lord. We glorify you. And as we sang, we lift our eyes up now to your word. Your word says that you have given us power and grace and mercy and that we find you in your word it says that you will illuminate your word for us father everything we need including you you have said we can find in your word 
And so it is there we look now to continue worship. We, I pray, Lord, that you would use your word to grow us in our, in our love and our desire for others to, to love you as well. Father, it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. One of my favorite pastimes usually happens between the hours of about 6 and 7 a.m. It's people watching at the gym. You have your, you have your usual characters there, you know, guys flexing in the, in the mirror and, you know, girls prancing around and, you know, the old farts like me who are trying to just stay conscious. But every once in a while, you get that special treat. And, and, and by special, I mean someone new. Someone who's new and excited and and, and the reason it's special is because they usually take the gym up on their offer to, uh, uh, for one free hour of, of personal training. And so you can hear them warming up. They're like, oh, yeah, I used to you know, work out when I was young, and I was the captain of this, you know, some team or whatever. A bunch of reasons why they're going to be okay. But an hour later, their clothes are on sideways. Their mascara is running down their neck. They got like one shoe on. Uh, they're soaking wet. They have like a few hairs left in their ponytail. The rest of their hair is like matted to their face. And the, the personal trainer is like, one more, one more. And they're like, I hate you. I hate you. They're just screaming. It's, it's, it's great fun, really, to watch somebody go through that transformation. It's hard to stay focused when you get that treat. I want you to see what Paul says in Colossians chapter 1. Look at verse 28. Paul says, him we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Now, what we're going to do next week is next week we're going to actually dig into this passage. We're going to use this passage just as a jumping off point today. And next week we're going to exposit this pretty deeply. But what I want you to see here is, is that we all have spiritual love handles, to put it in one way. And, and in fact, the more you grow in Christ, the more you get to know him, the more you realize how spiritually out of shape you are. Because, because it's a matter of our sin. That's why. It, it doesn't matter how much kale you gag down or, or which you know, essential oils you use. That has nothing to do with your spiritual health. Our sin drags us down. But what's neat is, is that you're sitting in a room full of God-ordained personal spiritual trainers. People God-ordained to push you further and harder than you ever thought you could go. It's true. Paul calls it here, proclaiming, warning, and teaching each other so that we can all grow towards Christ. But it's the same thing. So, so when we see a brother or sister who has, has some spiritual love handles or, or maybe has an injury or, or, or something like that, our job description as Christians is to teach and disciple them into a better walk with Christ. And it's not just about the negative stuff either. If we see someone excelling somewhere or, or showing an interest in something, then we also encourage them in those ways. So the question this week is how do we actually do that? How do we disciple someone? What, how do we proclaim and warn and teach each other into a better image of Christ. Because my guess is that one of the biggest obstacles that anyone in this room has, one of the, one of the largest objections would be, I don't know what to say. I, I wouldn't have anything to give them. I, I don't have that kind of depth. And I know this is often the case because I know that many of you think that in order to disciple someone, 
you have to have like this Solomon level fount of wisdom where you can come up with something and see some, you know, huge truth that'll change their life in a moment. Like somebody's going to come up to you and be like, man, I just, I don't know if my marriage is going to make it. And you're supposed to come up with something like a cricket outside will help you go to sleep, but a cricket inside will keep you up all night. And then they're going to say like, wow, I think we're going to be okay now. That's not it. That's not discipleship. It's far simpler than that. So I'll tell you right up front, if you're expecting something magic this morning, you're going to be disappointed. Because biblical discipleship is very simple, just like all the other basic principles in Scripture. The way we're going to do this is we're going to answer three questions about biblical discipleship. We're going to answer who, what, and how. Who do we disciple? How do we disciple? Excuse me, who do we disciple? What do we disciple? And then... How do we disciple them? So let's get started. I want to answer some real basic logistical questions about who we should disciple. And I want you to see how Scripture has answers for even the, 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 the simplest things that we might ask. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 10, Paul says, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Now, there's two things I want you to see in this passage. The first thing I want you to see is that God does not expect you to stretch 24 hours into 28 hours. There are decisions that will have to be made. We only have so many hours in the day. And, and, and Paul says very specifically, as we have an opportunity, meaning choices will have to be made. It's expected. So we can actually look to our Savior for, for, for how this might look. Think of it this way. If the creator of heaven and earth condescended to live among us, chose to have 12 disciples. A good rule of thumb is that we should have less. So, so to start off, unless you are some super discipler that's, that's retired, probably one or two even. Because the way God designed this process is, is success through multiplication. You, you, you may have heard of the... Uh, there we go. You may have heard of the fable of the king of India who offered to play chess with a poor man. The, the, the king came to play chess with this poor man. He said, I want to play chess with you, and I'll let you make any wager you want. And the poor man said, okay. He said, my wager is, is, is I want a grain of rice doubled on every square of the chessboard that I win. So the king's like, easy. And they play, the poor man wins, and the king goes, gets his servant to bring him a bag of rice, and he starts putting the rice out on the board. Puts one you know, grain on, on first square, two grains on the second square, four grains on the third square. But shortly he realizes that he's got a big problem. I did the math. By the 15th square, the king needed 16,384 grains of rice. By the 25th square, he needed 16,777,216 grains of rice. The, by the 64th square, the king was going to have to lay down more than 200 billion tons of rice. It would be enough to cover all of India a meter deep. And God's plan for discipleship is very similar. God doesn't want us to go a mile wide and an inch deep with a bunch of people. He wants us to go uh, an inch wide and a mile deep with very few people. 
And then those people will go an inch deep, in a, or excuse me, a mile deep and an inch wide with a few people. And then through the course of multiplication, uh, 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 that process will quickly produce incredible numbers of very mature Christians. Not incredible numbers of very immature Christians. Our culture has that backwards. So the first answer to the question of how we disciple is very few. Or excuse me, who we disciple is very few. Here's the second thing I want you to see out of the same verse in Galatians. So I want you to see that there is a priority. If you look down there at the end, especially those in the household of God. In other words, if you only have time to disciple one person, disciple someone who is part of this local body first. So we disciple very few people at a time, starting with those within the body of, the, of, of Christ. But God's word has more to say on the subject of who. Look at Titus chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. He says, But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They, meeting the older women, are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, he's saying to the men, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. In other words, Scripture is sensitive to the role of gender and age in relationships. Now, in public settings, I teach men and women. You have, different, you, know, you have men and women in your family, in your family which is another place where, 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 where teaching different genders might cross lines. But when it comes to the majority of intentional, personal, discipling relationships, it's wise for men to disciple men and women to disciple women. Gender is a God-given, important factor of our being. That's the way God made us. And the Bible instructs us to treat gender with both dignity and respect. Which means we make deliberate choices to avoid the paths of temptation. But that same passage, it, it also tells us something about age, doesn't it? It says older women are to disciple younger women and older men are to disciple younger men. So, so while there are certain people who God has equipped to, to disciple all different ages within the church... As a general rule of thumb, the older should disciple the younger. Now, I'm not saying that we need to, you know, pull out our birth certificates and do a comparison. I know for some of you, those, that's a heavy rock to carry around where you have all that information printed. But if you're 25 years old and, and maybe you've been working for four years, you're going to find it very difficult to disciple someone who's 70 on how they need to persevere in their vocation. Or, or if you're a mother who has, you know, maybe a six-month-old, you're going to find it difficult to, to disciple an older mother, mother who has, you know, six teenagers on parenting. It's just how it works. So discipling is best with, with one or two people from our church. Men should disciple men, women, women. And generally speaking, the older should disciple the younger. Let's get into a few more of the subtleties of who to disciple. Those are the simple ones. Because there's a couple of threads we can see running through the book of Acts that are, I think, interesting to pick up on. The first one is this. Few things display the power of the gospel more than the dismantling of those things that would divide us. 
Few things d display the power of the gospel more than how it dismantles all that stuff that would divide us. Race, ethnicity, social, economic status, you know, where you live, how you live, the cars you drive, all that stuff. The gospel enters our hearts and it unites us in a way that, that eludes the world. Now, that doesn't mean you can't disciple someone like you. But the impact of discipling someone unlike you can be very surprising. For example, in Acts, we see Paul has, has Jewish companions like Barnabas and Mark. But some of Paul's closest disciples were guys named Aristarchus and, and Timothy, Greeks. Aristarchus went into the arena with him in, in, in Ephesus, and, and he called Timothy my son and my brother, and he appointed him as head of the church in Ephesus. He was very, very close to him. So within the realm of discipleship, don't be afraid to step out and disciple someone who's not like you. You'll find amazing, amazing benefit from that. Now, the last part of who of discipling that I want, the, the last part of this question that I want to answer is this. And this is an important one because you're going to see people that you can see need help. They need growth. You can, sometimes you just pick up on it. Sometimes you know it for sure. And you're going to try. And they're going to reject you. They aren't going to have time. They're going to have too much other stuff going on. They just, they don't want it. And the last part of who to disciple is this. Don't waste your time trying to disciple someone who doesn't want to be discipled. It's hard to do, but they're not ready for it. The Bible is full of this principle. Proverbs 12.1, whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. That's pretty blunt. Uh, Proverbs 9.9, 9, give instruction to a wise man and he will be still wiser. Teach a righteous man and he will be increasing in learning. Psalm 1, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law he meditates day and night. Peter says in 1 Peter 5, verse 5, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. In other words, don't waste your time trying to disciple a foolish person who doesn't want to be discipled. And at the same time, I could say don't be foolish and reject discipling. That's who we disciple. Very few numbers of people from this body who want to be discipled. Now that we've figured out who, let's look at the question, let's answer the question, what are we going to disciple them? Okay? I hate to tell you this. Let me just give you the short answer. I don't know. What am I going to disciple? I don't know. Everybody's different. That's kind of the point. One person might be, might be weak in love, but strong in faith. One person might be strong in faith and weak in love. One might be strong in knowledge and weak in grace. One might be weak in grace and strong in knowledge. Everybody's different. Everybody needs to be discipled differently. The point is, we'll get to more of this in a moment, but, but, but you're going to have to get a little nosy. You're going to have to ask some questions. You're going to have to get to know people. Let me give you a few guidelines about, I'm not going to just leave you hanging, um, but let me give you a few guidelines then about what you would disciple someone once you figure that out. Second Peter, beginning in chapter 3, verse 17. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
And we can find this passage in a bunch of other places. But the point is, is that the Bible calls us over and over and over again to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. What does that look like? Well, Peter just said a little bit earlier in the first chapter of 2 Peter in verse 3, he said, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. So His divine power has granted to us all things that we need for godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory. So the main thing we want to do is grow someone in the knowledge of Christ because that's where they'll find everything they need for life and godliness. Peter's telling us if we want to grow someone in their Christ-likeness, or godliness is what he calls it, then he says we'll find what we need in the knowledge of him who's calling us to do that. The writer of Hebrews puts it this way. He says, let us therefore strive to enter that rest, it's the rest that's found in Christ, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. There's our godliness. For the word of God is living. So why in the world does this part happen after this? He says, for the word of God is active and living, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So scripture is clear that when Jesus calls us to teach each other to obey all the commands he has taught, or as Hebrew puts it, if we want to enter the rest of Jesus or stay out of, of disobedience. What it says is the obedience we need to enter that rest, it's found in the power of God's word to expose and then cleave sins from our soul. The way we enter rest is we grow in our knowledge of Christ, and as we grow in our knowledge of Christ, like a surgeon, the Word of God goes into our body and starts to slice and dice all the sin away from our soul and push it out, and therefore we grow. So we find what we need in His Word. So learning and studying and meditating on Scripture, it's imperative in any discipling relationship. Think of it this way. If godliness is a nail that is being driven further into the wood of our souls, then the word of God is the hammer. And if you're going to try to drive a nail without a hammer, it's not going to work. You're going to break something. Promise me, I can tell you. But this is a huge book, right? Some of you have like the extra spiritual Bible, but still, they're large books. Where do I find the part about raising teenagers? Where do I find the part about bullies? Where do I find the part about this subtle marriage problem? Where do I find all this stuff? I don't know where it is. Let me simplify things for you a lot. First of all, this is not a reference manual. It's a picture of God in his whole person. You're not going to flip to the back and find in paragraph, you know, 32, 8a, how to raise a teenager. It's not how it works. But ultimately, there are only three main things that we all need to grow in that are found everywhere in Scripture. Test me on this. Three main things that Christians need to grow in that then you can just go and find wherever that is all over the place in Scripture. Those things are sovereignty, grace, and um, glory. Sovereignty, grace, and glory. 
The three main things that we need to grow in. In other words, you won't find a passage that talks about parenting teenagers or, or subtle issues in your marriage. But, but, but you won't find a passage in here even on how to make pumpkin pie taste good. You're not going to find that in here. But you'll find mountains of instruction on God's sovereignty, grace, and glory. So I take that back. There is nothing in here that will tell you how to make pumpkin pie taste good. But everything else, you can figure that out. Test me on this. I'm serious. Those things we're not sure how to approach, those little subtle issues of relationships, those things that we don't see in the Bible, are always a result of stolen sovereignty, lacking grace, or stolen glory. All of our marriage problems, all the problems we face with children of any age, any problems at work, and I could go on and on and on, they all boil down to stolen sovereignty, lacking grace, or stolen glory. Therefore, the ultimate answer to the question of what we disciple is this. We point each other to the one who is sovereign. We point each other to the one who offers perfect grace. We point each other to the one for whose glory we live. It's the basic concept of discipling is to point to the one who is sovereign, who has grace and who we glorify. In other words, right discipling is teaching and warning and proclaiming to people, as Paul put it, the sovereignty, the glory, and the grace of the Savior we so desperately need more of. Find where that is in the Bible and you're on, you're on your way. Now I want you to see this play out real time in Scripture. That's the theoretical. Watch it play out in real time in Scripture. And I've told you this a bunch of times, I know, but bear with me because it's important and it, and it fits well. In the first six chapters of Romans, Paul gives us perhaps the six densest chapters of Christian doctrine. The depravity of man, uh, foreign righteousness, justification, redemption by faith, death in Adam, life in Christ, it's thick. Massive sovereignty, mountains of glory, and infinite grace in the first six chapters of Romans. Now, if that was the case, Paul, after demonstrating such an exhaustive understanding of God's sovereignty, grace, and glory, where do you think he might land? I mean, he's really getting the hang of this Christian thing if you read the first six chapters of Romans. Well, Paul's conclusion to his incredible grasp of God in Romans 7 is, why don't I do what I want to do, but instead I do what I don't want to do? That's where the person who wrote Romans 1 through 6 ended. After displaying this incredible grasp, of God's sovereignty, grace, and glory, Paul's conclusion is, what a wretched man I am. His growing comprehension of God grows his comprehension simultaneously of his own depravity. But where does that lead him? Well, the final verses of Romans chapter 7 says what? But thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Listen, so often the reason we feel inadequate is because we don't feel like we can fix someone. The Bible never talks about fixing things. The Bible talks about broken things. The goal of discipleship is not finding that magic spell that will make all of their problems go away. 
No, what we see so perfectly displayed in Scripture is that growth in our knowledge of Christ only leads us to a better understanding of how broken we are. It leads us to a better understanding of our profound need for more of Him. So as we grow in our need for Christ, we'll be left only, only wanting to proclaim louder thanks to be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Which will then grow us in our desire to be like Him. It's this big circle. The more we learn about Christ, the more we realize how worthless we are, the more we need more of Him, the more we see Him, and the more we want to be like him. So ultimately, our growth in knowledge of Christ, our growth in our knowledge of Christ, will grow our, our, our desire to be like him. Now that's the who and the what. How do we do this? How do we disciple someone like that? Well, you've all, you've all heard me say this a bunch of times. We are a family. And as a family, we must constantly press and work to move past those perpetually casual relationships that our culture wants us to have. It takes work. And, and, and you know what I mean by that is we need to be lovingly nosy. Paul said in Galatians chapter 6, in verses 1 through 2, he says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression... You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. So it's not like, I'm so spiritual, so let me tell you where you're wrong. No, it's, brother, I love you. I want you to be more like Christ. Let me help. It's a spirit of gentleness. He says, but keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. So don't fall into whatever you're helping them with. And he says in verse 2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. In Romans chapter 12, verse 5, it says this, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. So you belong to me and I to you the same way a foot belongs to an ankle. And a little later in Romans chapter 15, beginning, Paul is summing up this idea of unity. And he said, we who are strong have an obligation. You are required to bear with the failings of the weak. And not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good. Why? To build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. So the first answer to how we biblical, biblically disciple someone is in a loving, open relationship. It's tough to do. We cannot bear one another's burdens if we don't know what their burdens are. And our culture has taught us that burdens are weakness, so don't share them. Now understand, I'm not, I'm not saying that we're going to have a, you know, a featured sinner on the screen every morning, you know, every, once a Sunday. I'm not saying you have to spill your guts to every person. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is that we have to be willing to share our lives. The good parts along with the messy parts with, with those who would encourage us and strengthen us and disciple us to be more like Christ. Because we trust whoever that person might be. We, we trust that their desire is for us to grow. I hope you guys have seen from Shannon and I that, that, that we have very few secrets about our troubles and our failures. We've tried to be very open about those things. 
This is, this is more of an encouragement for you guys to keep doing what you're doing. Because honestly, you guys, I, I hear little bits and pieces. You're doing a good job at this. Guys, we could use a little more work on it. Ladies, you're doing a good job. I hear little bits and pieces of how y'all are opening up to each other. It's awesome to see you displaying the heart of your Savior to each other. That love and care to grow each other more like Him. So first, biblical discipleship, it takes part in loving, transparent relationships. That leads us to the second answer to how we disciple, which is it should be done as an invitation into your life, not a classroom. We see this principle best from our Savior. Think about it this way. Picture Jesus approaching someone today like he did back then. He walks up to someone and he says, follow me. What are they going to say? Sure. What's your Twitter handle? He's like, no, I mean, follow me. Like I said, okay. What is it, Instagram, Snapchat, which one? He's like, no, I mean, follow me. I mean, that's, it'd be like a bad who's on first sketch. Because Jesus meant he wanted his disciples to live with him. For example, we can learn great things from teachers on the radio and the internet, but we cannot be discipled by them. We can't, you can't see how John MacArthur treats his wife. You can't see how Alistair Begg handles money. You can't see how John Piper acts when he's angry. And that's the ingredients that discipleship is made of. To let people see your life. Like I, I said this last week, those of you who would disciple, you need to, to let people see you while you are in the midst of life, while you are parenting, while you are working, while you are struggling, not after. And not in the sterilized vacuum of a classroom. In fact, you want to hear something crazy? This is, this is going to shock you guys. The Bible says that you're supposed to look to me as an example of how to live your life. I don't know who that scares more, you or me. But it's what the Bible says. I guess it probably depends on how well you know me or how long you've known me. But even then, I still hope it's, it's an example of what God can do to a wrecked life. One of the best ways that you can disciple someone is to let them see your weakness. You want to let them see who's working in you. The point of discipling is not so that they see you. So before you start to think, I don't have anything to offer anyone, let me let you in on a little secret. It's way worse than you think. You have nothing to offer anyone that is not given you from Christ. You don't have anything, but Christ does, and that's the whole point, is we want to let people see Christ working in us, not us working in us. And the best way to let them see that is through our weaknesses. Be okay telling people, you want to hear how I screwed up last week? Mothers, look at the sense of just relief when you tell another mother, like, let me tell you what I said to my kid last week. I mean, it was off the hook. I was just rah, screaming. And watch him just be like, oh, you do that too? I love it. Maybe you're not a preacher. Maybe you don't have this intention, you know, this deep well of, of knowledge or, or something like that. Does that mean you don't have anything to teach me? Absolutely not. Do you understand how many other things I need to learn? She'll give you a list if you, if you want. It's a lot. 
There are so many different things that we can teach each other. We need to let disciples be part of our lives to see our weaknesses. Let them see you repent and reconcile and rely on God. Let them see Christ working in you because that's where discipleship really begins to work. What I'm describing here is what I want the culture of this church to be. I want this to be a body of believers who are, are so consumed to be like Christ that they have very few other desires. And they want to see Him work in each other in the same way. If you think about it, what is on our mind is what we say. It's what we work for and pursue. And, and what is on our minds is what we influence others towards and what's, it's what we're open to be influenced towards ourselves. Think about this. If you're going to go buy a car, all of a sudden you are open to influence of other people about a car that you normally never would be because it's on your mind. What's on your mind is what you are open to be influenced by. So my deepest desire is that we would be a body of believers who are consumed with Christ. That would mean that's who we want to, how, who we want to influence others and it's what we're open to being influenced about. I want us to be as desperate to grow in our understanding of his power and grace and glory as we are for ourselves, as we are for our brothers and sisters. I want, I want it to be uncomfortable here for Christians who are not consumed by their Savior. I want Christians who want to come here and have fun to leave thinking, why are they always talking about Jesus? How come we can't talk about anything else? I want this church to be a body of, of, of personal spiritual trainers who because of their love for their Savior, they can't help themselves but just keep saying to each other, one more brother, one more sister, keep going, keep going, keep going because Christ is worth it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for the gift of your word. It is such an incredible blessing that you have brought us into a relationship to know you. Father, I draw on the promise you made us in your word that we read this morning that you are, are making perfect those who you have made perfect. And I pray, Lord, that you would give us an understanding and a desire not to let everyone see our success, but to let our brothers and sisters see you working in our lives. And that through that, we would walk together toward Christ, becoming more like him, loving more like him, ultimately thinking more like him. Father, it is, it is only because of him that I can even ask these things, and I know that it is because of him that you will grant them. And so it is in his name that I pray. Amen.